from the studio of KPSU Portland and in association with the Department of History at Portland State University, this is Beyond Footnotes. Join us as we explore public, local, and world history through discussions with professors, authors, fellow students, and alumni. Thank you for joining us. This is Evan Smiley. And this is Lindsay Smith. <laughs> We're always interested in what you guys think. Please feel free to contact the Beyond Footnotes team at Facebook or Twitter or email at beyondfootnotes at gmail.com with any questions or concerns. For previous episodes and extended content, check out kpsu.org slash beyondfootnotes or soundcloud.com. How do our ideals as individuals affect our collective behavior? How about the reverse? In other words, how do grander social behaviors affect the individual? How do these ideals and behaviors transcend time and place? How do our intentions lead to change? And then how do our reactions to that change continue to influence us and others? These are very broad and admittedly vague questions that often intrigue historians. History is more than a set of dates and facts. One of my goals in presenting this podcast is to invite conversation about what history is and the different ways people can engage with it. History includes people from varied backgrounds with innumerable beliefs, desires, motivations, ambitions, etc. The relationships forged throughout history are often much more complex, complicated, and interesting than generalizations or stereotypes allow. The origins of stereotypes themselves are intimately linked to historical relationships. To study human relationships across cultures, how they changed over time, and how they continue to develop is an aspect of what one might term cultural history. In this episode of Beyond Footnotes, I interviewed David Peterson Del Mar, Associate Professor of History at Portland State University and author of African, American, From Tarzan to Dreams from My Father, Africa in the U.S. Imagination, slated to release on June 15th. He received his Ph.D. in U.S. History from the University of Oregon in the early 90s, where he also received the Charlotte Newcomb Dissertation Fellowship offered by the Woodrow Wilson National Fellowship Foundation. His first book, What Trouble I Have Seen, A History of Violence Against Wives, followed from his dissertation. David worked as a museum curator and writer before becoming a founding faculty member of the University of Northern British Columbia in the 1990s. He moved to Portland in 1999 and began working as an associate professor. He teaches courses in history of the U.S. family, environmental history, and Pacific Northwest history. His works, including seven books, concern those subjects as well as the American perceptions of Africa and comparative education. He is the co-founder and president of Yogana, a nonprofit that links schools in the Pacific Northwest and Ghana through letter writing and fundraising. Welcome, David. Thank you for joining us today. Oh, it's a pleasure to be with you both. So let's begin with some more information about you. Where are you from originally? How did you get to PSU? And where did your interest in history come from? Well, thanks, Evan. Um, I grew up, as they say, so far out in the country, even the Episcopalian spoken tongues. So a mile and a half south of Fort Clatsop, we had our own water system. I went to a very small school, Lewis and Clark Consolidated. And at a young age, I was somewhat, well, I was peculiar, I guess, in a number of ways uh, for most of my classmates, but I, I was very interested in history, but certainly not social history. I was much more interested in history of warfare. So I bought dozens and dozens of the Ballantine World War II series at Chris's News. And in fact, one of uh, 
one thing that would happen uh, every once in a while is our next door neighbor who was uh, a logger would get really drunk and he would call me up and ask me to come over and help him fill his wood box with kindling and wood. So I'd bring those in and he'd start telling me stories. And when I told him that I hoped to be a writer someday, he wanted to tell me the history of his life immigrating from Scandinavia and the different sorts of logging jobs he had worked at. And at the time, which was the 1960s, I thought that was the most boring thing in the world. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, it took me quite a while, I guess, to become uh, more of a socio-cultural historian. So, um, David, your books tend to show historical relationships between individual behaviors and broader patterns of social behavior, Uh, more specifically how people deal with change. Your forthcoming Mm. book, African, at least that's my interpretation, Uh your your forthcoming book, African, American, details the changing behaviors of white and black Americans towards Africa and Africans, focusing on the 20th and 21st centuries. More specifically, you are concerned with how race, gender, time, and African-shaped American quests. You write, quote, Going to Africa has always been a metaphor for Americans, an epic quest to strange lands that inevitably circles back to ourselves, end quote. So, first off, what is a quest? And you don't have to regurg- you know, regurgitate your book for us because we want people t- to read it. But <laughs> if, you would, if you would please just give us a few examples of how um, something uh, like race, gender, time, Africans have shaped American quests. Oh, sure, Lindsay. Yeah, that's, that's a really good question and, and certainly a complicated one. I think the genesis for this book, well, certainly it came when I visited Africa for the first time in 2010. And at that time, I was working on wrapping up a general history of the American family. And being in Africa for only 10 days or so helped me to do that because it exposed me to a culture in a much deeper way than I guess I'd been able to as, uh, as a student of history. You know, uh, one of the sayings is the past is a foreign country. They do things differently there. But I hadn't traveled very much. And when I traveled, I was able to experience in a fuller way, in a more direct way, I suppose, what I'd been reading about as an academic, particularly what I'd been reading about and trying to understand the historical development of the American family, which was namely that the culture that I live in and I was raised in, that of the second half and now into the 21st century, but second half of the 20th century, is historically speaking and even today compared to most of the world a very peculiar culture because we are so obsessed with individualism and obsessed with quests. So... As someone who had studied the history of violence against wives and other forms of male privilege and male dominance, that had been the primary lens from which I had viewed the development of the American family. But living in a culture that was more traditional and in which obligation to others was uh, everyone's or most everyone's organizing principle of life and seeing how that emphasis on collectivity and responsibility shaped everything it seemed like that helped me to think about the last 100 years or so of American history and especially changes that really sped up in in my lifetime having been born in the late 1950s I could see that wow this was something new in the history of the world that the primary purpose of life became an individual quest for meaning or transcendence 
or maybe just having a good time all the time, uh, maybe just having fun, like having a good weekend. Um, uh, somebody said that if on Monday you can't tell your fellow workers that you had a good weekend, that's become like the sin that can't be forgiven. So it was really peculiar and, and disturbing and fascinating to be around a bunch of people who seemed much happier than I was with seemingly less reason to be and starting to meditate on how that probably had a lot to do with the relationships that they were embedded in. So that helped me with that subtitle, I guess, to the book to see the path of the American family as moving from obligation to freedom. But then it got me thinking, of course, about, well, if I'm going to be spending more time in West Africa, um, and if I'm going to be studying West Africans and working closely with West Africans, as I do that, I need to understand much more fully uh, what my own preconceptions are. So I thought it would be useful to study the sort of archaeology, as it were, I guess, of American quests in Africa. And because we always go there expecting a lot of things. So when I landed in Accra and when we were going around in Ghana, you know, the, that Toto song, Africa, was constantly playing in my mind. <laughs> so it was interesting years later to start studying that a bit through, uh, you know, the wonderful archives of, of, of Google and stuff like, uh, I'm being somewhat facetious here, but studying pop culture, sometimes you're, you're, you're not going off to the archives, you're looking at some obscure blog about why did so-and-so write this song? And um, so it's, it's interesting to start to sort of peel back. So overwhelmingly, of course, there's a Tarzan narrative in the wilderness, there's sort of the white savage who's both badder and more noble than anything that Africa can present, uh, sort of the white male figure that displace, displaces um, indigenous people. And of course, the great emphasis on um, animals and wildlife and so forth. And of course, you can see plenty of that, like a scarlet thread all the way through uh, American depictions of Africa. Uh, and then eventually it, it started to dawn on me, and one would think I would have noticed this a lot sooner, having taught the history of gender and studied it quite a bit. But gosh, you know, men, uh, white and men alike, have a, from America have approached Africa in quite a bit different way, in quite a bit of different way, and um, have tended to be much more relational. And that's not to say that there haven't you know, that that women of color, white women haven't brought their own baggage along, so to speak, but there seems to be a much greater willingness to interact with African people and to have one's point of view and experiences and, and ultimately I think one's very identity shaped by that. And I guess that's in a sense maybe the thesis of the book is partly because of women's openness to that and partly because of Africans increasingly impinging on American quests, the sort of self that we go to Africa to reify or refine and further feed and identify and nurture and hold up, holes start to appear in that ideal self and other people's 
lives and their dreams start to impinge upon it. And the very idea of the very American idea of the purpose of life is self-actualization and the self is the sort of imperial entity that trumps any social obligation starts to become kind of silly. What do you think is a gender difference of how men and women approach Africans? And and, and how, well, your book is, is more concerned, like going from the U.S. to Af- Africa, not necessarily the reverse. But do you see similarities with um, African men and women and their approach to, is there a gender difference there as well? Oh, yeah, that's interesting. Just from um, your experience. Right. You know... That's it's there's also and I'm still very much a beginner in understanding African life. But from my experience, and I'm someone who attends um, Portland International Church, which is comprised mostly of people from Africa and their children. So I get some interaction uh, every week uh, with people from Africa, certainly. And I would say and some it's paradoxical and maybe even ironic, I guess, that Africans certainly have a reputation for having more rigid gender roles, and in some respects that, that's true. Most women in Africa, it's important to be a good housekeeper. So one of the women that I stayed with for a few days, I stayed with the family. I think the impression I got from her is she would have felt that she was letting everyone down if she didn't at the end of a 15-hour day, take care of the major household duties, whether her husband was working that day or even at all or not. But on the other hand, um, African men um, tend not to be very reserved. So some of the, one of the schools I visited, I remember meeting the fellow who founded the school, and he founded it in his living room. You know, it was an amazing story. He just started the school because there were a bunch of children in that neighborhood who didn't have a school. And he had some time. He had a little bit of money. So he just opened a school for them in his living room. And 25 years or so later, the school is very successful. And eventually, you know, he started charging fees and so forth, although they're still relatively low. And uh, he's such an amazing man. He's in a lot of pain and he has severe health problems, but he always has a big smile on his face and he just loves his students still. And when we were finished and they were taking us out to the roadside, you know, he took my hand. And I wasn't sure, I couldn't tell whether that's because he was somewhat frail or because he just wanted to hold hands with me as we walked to where the taxis would pick us up from. Uh, and that's quite common. There's an openness, an emotional openness and intensity that I think is relatively rare, especially in, uh, not to stereotype, but uh, men like myself, heterosexual white men, I think we tend to be more closed off. And it's women tend to be more outgoing. And in Africa, there doesn't seem to be that sort of division from what I've experienced, at least. What false views of Africa and Africans would you like to readdress? Gosh, well, there's so many. I think I've also been volunteering, and some of our students are uh, here at Portland State in an honors class, and in the fall it'll be a history of immigration class with the history department. We've started volunteering with students who are recent immigrants, and just today the teacher remarked, that a lot of times people assume that her students aren't very bright because they're working on their English skills. But of course they are. 
It's just finding the English words to use that uh, correspond to it. So certainly one of the noxious stereotypes is simply that uh, Africans have been less intelligent. And just a few minutes with a candid conversation with an African uh, will be enough to disabuse one of that if, if one has an open mind. But I think there's less obvious there's less obvious stereotypes as well. One of them that's extremely powerful is that Africans are helpless. And one of the authors that I've admired, one of the books that I have admired on Africa, the author remark, uh, tells this remarkable anecdote when he teaches African history or African culture. He shows his students a picture of people in Africa and they're happy. They're just going about their work and there's nothing particularly odd going on. Uh, certainly nothing bad is happening. But he says that 99 times out of 100, his students, and these are students, these are people who are going to college and presumably are trying to be sensitive or at least think they should be, but he finds that uh, almost always the initial reaction students have when they see pictures of people from Africa is that we need to help them. And as someone who's helped establish a nonprofit, uh, have some small grant programs in, in Ghana, I've certainly run across encounters where that's what people running schools want me to think, <laughs> you know, because they have learned that the Americans are easy to get money out of if you appear abject. So they can do that, but they're not. You know, the thing is that they're very resourceful. A friend who teaches at Ashesi University, which is the fa my favorite university. If I were 18, it's where I would head off to, and it's located in West Africa. And Ashesi has a horrible road. So the faculty and about half the student's body commute at least an hour one day over this horrible road, and that's just part of what they do. And so I was asking him, I was working on a, a chapter for a book, and, and I was arguing that Ashesi was not just a white liberal arts college, a Western liberal arts college that was plunked down in Africa. It had some African elements as well, because sometimes it's referred to as like uh, the Swarthmore of West Africa, because the founder went to Swarthmore. So he's incorporated the liberal arts into the West African curriculum at the university level, and they have remarkable successes. One of their graduates is a board member uh, of our of Yogana, of our organization, and she's studying African development at Edinburgh. You know, and in 15 years, she might be running the UN or something. Those are the sorts of students that they turn out. So I was asking my friend, you know, what's African about Ashesi? And he said, well, I can think of two things. The road, that's African, but the willingness to travel that road every day for two hours or more, that's African. See, and I think that's the part of Africa that we usually don't see, uh, even if we travel there. Uh, and certainly if we just watch the movies and Blood Diamond or what have you, you know, we see the misery and we see the flies and the baby's eyes and we see the distended bellies uh, and we see the roads. Uh, and we see the lack of books in the schools, what we don't see is a tremendous resilience and determination of people who succeed oftentimes in spite of that. 
And as one of my friends here in Portland, Matthew Essia, uh, who grew up in a small town in Ghana that we have, we have several schools there now. And uh, he talks about when he was growing up, if they needed to build a school, so they all started uh, working for a local farmer and they built the school. And he said now his fear is that when people need a school, they just wait for a Western NGO to come along. But that's sort of a learned behavior because of the way the West has approached Africa. Do you feel that these misconceptions that we have, especially studying history and imperialism, do you think false ideas that we still hold today, do you think that's remnant of our interactions that we've had in the past? Oh, yes, uh, very much so, Evan. And I mean, imperialism is difficult to separate out of it. And in fact, one of the people who read my book and gave me feedback ahead of time was quite critical of the book because there wasn't more about imperialism in there. Uh, which maybe there should be. Uh, and I felt like, well, that's not what the book's about. It's more about images, uh, how people have thought about Africa as opposed to how Americans have treated Africa. But it is, I think, hard to tease that out that Americans have very much um, approached Africa through the lenses, and I should I should uh, back up a little bit and say white Americans uh, have very much approached Africa through the lens of the sense of superiority. For black Americans, it's been much more complicated. And until the early 20th century, there were very few black Americans, African Americans, who uh, were not pretty wary of Africa, because their fear, of course, is that they would sort of get lumped in with it. And there are vestiges of that fear today in some elements, certainly of the African-American community and in some quarters among more educated African-Americans, even by the early 20th century, certainly after World War II, well, particularly by the 1950s uh, of the time of Africa rising and the African independence movements, there was a much more full-throated acceptance of uh, of Africa and a f a finding uh, common ground, even in in the the publication of the Black Bourgeoisie, you know, of Ebony Magazine, a celebration of African culture, even though there was still um, oftentimes a sort of a distinction, and among more radical Africans, going back uh, to Marcus Garvey in the early 20th century, and certainly by the time of the Black Power movement of the 1960, a very strong Pan-Africanism or Afrocentrism. But I think I think it hasn't just had the sort of economic colonial echoes to it. I think there are so many cultural expressions that we grow up with, that all of us grow up with, white and black, that we all, even today, grow up with some Tarzan images in the back of our minds. A good friend of mine's uh, African-American who's lived in Ghana for almost a quarter century still says, you know, he has those ideas in the back of his mind. He went and saw those movies as a children, and it caused a lot of pain uh, for him. And... Today, uh, well, not just today, but but for several decades, I think the aid industry has played a role in this because the idea is in order to get people to help, people to contribute, you need to show Africans in a very abject light. And as I alluded to before, I think sometimes 
Africans have picked up on that message because oftentimes they, they do need help and they do want help. One of the school leaders that we've talked to, one of the headmasters, has this remarkable school and it's in a very poor area and they really struggle. But the children are incredibly optimistic and resourceful and positive. But he took pictures of them to try to find people who would help pay their fees. And all of the pictures show them with these big frowns and huge sad eyes, expressions that I've, I've visited the school. I've spent days there. I've never seen a child looking that way. <laughs> <laughs> so he said, well, we, have to, we explained to them the Americans want to see them look miserable. <laughs> that brings to my memory, your book is dedicated to Brando Okoto. Yes. And in the section that I, I read on him, it was, he was talking about uh, the Westerners have an eagerness to undercut the local initiative and to to not really it sounds like not really uh, take into account local ideas and one thing I, I like the quote from him it's like you are not poor you are partners mm. and I like to consider that relationship that maybe that is the direction of a positive relationship that we Westerners and Africans can go into is being uh, partners instead of being I need money so I'm going to act like I am like you said like abject and then the Westerners idea well what's what's African about this um, university so trying to share ideas and trying to share identities right mm-hmm. and forge identities with each other you, your your book does fo- focus more on accounts like personal accounts and fic- and fictional accounts of um traveling and and questing to to Africa for both white and and black americans mm-hmm. and I think that's very important to set that scene because it's talking about what you just talked about. You have certain images that you have in your mind, depending on how you grew up and how you, what stories you were introduced to. Like the, the Tarzan story is a, a story that I, I doubt any American hasn't heard before, especially since it's a Disney film. Mm, but um, right. so I think it's very important to set the story to. Um, kind of show how different travel accounts and journeys and personal diaries and things like that uh, personal accounts have changed over time too so mm. that you can better understand the imperial the, the effects of imperialism because it's definitely woven in there it's, it's inextricable to a degree yeah if i may say along those lines yeah. Lindsay, and something that you two are prompting me to think about that is a, a very important theme in the book, is that Africans have increasingly impinged. So Tarzan was much easier to imagine before African independence. And the Tarzan industry kind of fell apart, literally. The films became less and less popular in the 1950s, and then they virtually disappeared in the 1960s. And it's not coincidental that that was a time when Africa was attaining its independence and there was this optimism The Tarzan books remain important and underwent a sort of renaissance, but it just wasn't cool in Hollywood to make explicitly racist movies anymore. Mm -hmm. Like, that was not allowed. There were still plenty of subtly racist movies, (laughs) you know, uh, about Africa or not, but to be as explicitly racist as that became less sustainable. So the Tarzan films that came out You know, Tarzan couldn't just be knocking black people around. 
and uh, one of the, I can't remember the name of the film, but it came out in the early 1960s, and it starred Rayford Johnson, who was an African-American decathlete, and his brother. And these these guys were just as tough and strong as Tarzan, and they're the ones that had the last big battle. He had to sort of stand there and watch. And this was not what a white audience wanted, you know. And so it didn't do very well at the box office, and, and then the franchise sort of disappeared for a couple of decades. But because black people, and of course this was black people at home, as well as in Africa, these the movements uh, towards, towards black power and autonomy were happening on both sides of the Atlantic, and in some ways across the globe, uh, that made it more difficult to uh, engage in these sort of colonial tropes about uh, what black people's place were and sort of the white hero. So do you see in, in your experience now traveling to West Africa and, and having West African friends, do you see any of, of those visions uh, unwinding and changing um, in the sense that the relationships are becoming more complex and less stereotypical as time goes. Do you see the relationships Uh between Africans and Americans changing for a more towards a more positive relation partnership? Oh, yes, yes, very much. Well, and and you were talking, um, Lindsay, a little bit ago about Brando. So in some respects, the book is highly autobiographical, even though it doesn't seem to be, but my friendship with Brando overlapped with the book, and I think when I met Brando, I mean, I believed in that that Yogana and our board should have Africans on the board, and that uh, it was important for myself and other uh, white people. The the co-founder of Yogana and the person who actually coined the name was only 15 at the time, uh, Elizabeth Fosler Jones, but neither one of us knew much about Africa. Uh, So there were African people on the board. And Brando is a very unique character, very, very kind and extraordinarily big hearted, also fairly blunt. So he right away, when I I met him, we talked for about two hours or two and a half hours straight. And he let it be known right away that he had a lot of experience in African development and you had to go about it very carefully. So then there's something I think I quote him in the book, like I was fixated on raising money and he was fixated on relationships. Mm -hmm. And so over time, our organization became more and more focused on relationships and less and less interested in raising money. And to the extent that we raise money for Ghana schools, really, through Brando's guidance, the main reason we do that is to try to motivate them to raise money themselves. And he would just have, it was wonderful to, to go around and watch him talk because he would get headmasters. In half an hour, he would walk them from, we want Yogana to buy us a school bus, to Brando saying, well, what are you going to start? You know, you, my, my friend, you know, you are Yogana, so why don't you start something? And you know what, we, what you want. We don't know what you want. And it may be small, but you can start it. And then we can come on in and help. And when we're finished, when you finish the project, our name does not need to be on the building because it will be you that did this. And you could just see people's minds start to turn And for me personally, I mean, um, about a year after I met Brando, 
um, he was diagnosed uh, with stage four cancer. So knowing him became a sort of metaphor of, like I, I couldn't do anything for Brando the last year of his life, but be his friend, is his, that's all I could do. But that was what he needed and that's what I was able to do. So that ended up being, you know, a very deep, deep lesson for me about relationships. What happens when you put relationships first? And it, it can lead to suffering and confusion and anger. But there's, I guess that's my own sort of, of African quest. <laughs> and it's maybe it's just as much drawn out of thin air as any other interpretation but I feel like if your African quest is informed by deep relationships with diverse people trying to care for each other, that quest really, I find that quest extremely compelling. And I do see that happening. I see it happening with our organization when children here will say things like we give them our evaluations at the end of the year and these children who've led relatively lot, uh, sheltered lives, some of them will say, well, through writing letters to children in Ghana, I learned there are other kids in the world. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and nowadays, you know, that's a big realization. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you really take that seriously, that there are other children in the world who as important as you are, then that can take you all sorts of places. But... Certainly, you see it in literature and the popularity of more and more African writers. And what was it, three or four years ago? Well, I guess I can just do the math. But when uh, Coney 2012 came along five years ago or so, it was this huge phenomenon. But Africans like Teju Cole and Africans living in Uganda stood up and said, you know, wait a minute here. This, is, this doesn't make sense. Like, we object. And they really made millions of people think, at least a little bit, about the sort of assumptions of what Cole calls the white savior industrial complex. And why are you listening to these people tell you our story? Believe me, it's a more complicated story, and the solution is more complicated, and there are a whole other set of heroes out there who happen to be black Africans that you're not talking about whose lives aren't being represented. What about that? And a couple of decades ago, I don't think, let alone a half century ago, um, there wasn't that sort of pushback to the stereotyping. So we talked a bit about Yogana. Uh, you're the president and co-founder. But how can PSU students and the greater Portland community get involved with Yogana? Oh, gosh, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, we have a really nice website that uh, a company donated their, their time to, uh, to create. Uh, so that's a great place to go find details. We're always looking. The number one thing, I can hear Brando in my ear right now, David, don't ask for money. <laughs> so as Brando would say, um, your service is, is helpful uh, and essential. Um, we rely on teachers, so we're always looking for teachers who, even though they're already overwhelmed, they're willing to take on something extra because they think it's worth it. We work with about 30-some-odd schools in Ghana and about 25 in the Pacific Northwest now. They're mostly middle schools, but we work with some high schools. We work with uh, Sun Programs After School, sponsored by the, uh, let's see, Campfire Columbia and also Africa House. 
House. Uh, a student at St. Mary started uh, the, her own group there. So students can start something on their own. That's what our co-founder Elizabeth Fosler Jones did at Central Catholic five years ago. So you don't have to be a teacher. You can be a student or you could be an interested parent. And we're always looking for people from Ghana who can go into classrooms. We have two amazing volunteers, Dominic Fordwar and Izan Wia, who were former headmasters in Ghana. And Izan has gone into dozens of classrooms in uh, Oregon and Vancouver and talked about his experiences there. But uh, we also need people who can help us go through letters and make sure that the rosters are lined up correctly. We're having our third um, annual celebration at Africa House at Urco in Northeast Portland on May 20th. So tickets for that are available on our website. And they're $20, which includes wonderful African food, African music. So it's like uh, we're not charging people $100 and we don't forest people to stay there until a certain number of paddles had been raised. We really do try to focus on the relationships. And there's opportunities to travel uh, to Ghana in the summer and visit some of the schools there if you want to. Three of us are going at the end of June. And uh, so that'll be really exciting. Um, so we also were, we, we try to be really open. A little over a year ago, Komi Calivore, one of our board members, and I met Ibrahim Ibrahim and Noah Kurtzma, and they work with the World Affairs Council. They're part of the Youth Leadership Program. So these are two guys, I think then they were 16 and 17, and they are now project coordinators for a Skype program that Noah's leading with uh, King School in Northeast Portland and a school in Ghana. And then Ibrahim has uh, been behind the Photography and Identity Project that we're carrying out at Reynolds High School and then with uh, a very rural school where Brando's actually uh, remains are actually buried. It's just like his home village. So we love finding 15, 16, 17-year-olds or older who have a passion for, for doing something and have an idea and we're willing to try a pilot project and, and see if it flies. I recommend checking out the Ogano website, just, you know, to see to see what the uh, foundation is all about. And also, you get to see some samples of the letters that are exchanged between students from the Pacific Northwest and Ghana. Thanks, Lindsay. Yes, uh, they're really neat. They're really neat because it's 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 like it's questions like, what did you? like to do what are your favorite foods what do you do on the weekends things that are just normal day-to-day -day behaviors that maybe are exactly the same as yours and you just don't you just assume that they're totally different mm -hmm. or something like yeah. that so. we've started asking too if i can just quickly sure. butt in we've asked this last year, we've started asking two questions that are sort of more thematic, I guess, or trying to get students to, after they do the introductions, we ask them to describe a hardship that they've overcome in life and how they overcame it. And as part of that, they might interview someone. And interviewing elders is one of those projects that we're digging in more deeply with. So we're doing that more intensively at Reynolds High School as well as the St. Andrew Nativity School. 
And some of the students there, you can see their work in a couple of our newsletters have, have done wonderful stuff. And then for the general letter writers, the third one, which is just starting to dribble in, you know, April, May, June, is on the subject of what would you like to change in your community and how are you going to do it? Because we really believe in putting students to work doing real work. So they're, they're representing themselves. They're acting as cultural ambassadors. We're putting them to work that way. But we also want them to be uh, the Noahs and Ibrahims and Elizabeths of the future who are thinking about how can I make a difference in my community right now? And what could I do? And I know that's something I found deeply discouraging by the time I hit, say, ninth grade is the message I was getting is that if I worked and studied really hard, maybe in 20 years I could do something interesting, which is almost sort of how it turned out, come to think of it. But it doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't have to at all. So what kind of role do you think a historian can play in uh, the understanding and ongoing development of the relationships between Africans and Americans? Oh, that's a that's a good question. Um, I think of the work of a historian and the work of someone facilitating relationships as being intercultural or otherwise as being surprisingly congruent, I guess, Lindsay, because as historians, you know, we know something. As scholars, we know something. We go to the evidence and we have certain preconceptions. And they're not just biases. I mean, sure, there's biases involved, but they're also, we also come to it with a certain amount of wisdom and insight that we've gained from what we already know. It's the same way when we approach a, we approach a doorknob, the, what we've learned about how to open a door is usually quite useful. <laughs> of course, the problem is when you confront questions that are more complicated than doorknobs, Part of what you know is wrong, right? And the trick is, as the theologian Reinhold Niebuhr put it, we're all wrong about things. We just don't know which things we're wrong about. <laughs> if we knew which things well, we were wrong about, we could get rid of it. So as historians, as scholars, we're always looking for more evidence and more ideas. It's like we want the ideas and insights in our head to have relationships with other ideas and relationship, other ideas and concepts and theories, so we can sort out which ones to keep and which ones to amend and which ones to maybe toss out altogether. And I think it's the same thing when people from different cultures come together. That's why it's so important. That's why, you know, Brando realized this is the Ghana students, they thought, we're sitting in the dirt. Uh, we're sharing books. We can't take our books home. We have a rude desk. Uh, we don't even have a pen. Um, some of us don't have enough paper to write with, so we are inferior. And they're looking at the exterior things. But every culture has incredible strengths. And certainly traditional African cultures have, and, and modern African cultures have, tremendous strengths. So if we can come together as sort of a no-host, with no, a sort of a no-host 
no side is bigger than the other partnership, as Brando continually talked about, then we have a much better chance of creating a hybrid or a synthesis or a sort of cosmopolitan mix that really does have the best elements of both and maybe even creates some new cultures in the midst of it. I mean, African-American culture was a hybrid culture. It didn't exist. And it's been incredibly resilient and has bequeathed all sorts of gifts to the rest of the world. And that synthesis was carried out under incredible cruelty and, and duress and pain and oppression. But look what came out of it. So, and, and that's, that's something I've gained, I think, a deeper appreciation um, through going to West Africa and through studying American interactions with Africa is that America is many countries. It's the, there's certainly a white perspective that's often privileged, and I've probably privileged myself in this discussion, but there are other ways of looking at the world, and there have been other ways of being an American that have been really influential and are really influential and that are different. And that certainly has had a lot to do with this particular subject, too, of how Americans have, have viewed Africa. But this larger question of, uh, or this other question of uh, the relationship between scholarship and interpersonal relationships, I think both, of it, both relationships demand us to stand up and say our piece, but they also demand us to have humility and to listen and to be ready to change our minds. And that's hard to do. Well, unfortunately, we are just about out of time. It's been a pleasure having you on the show. Oh, thank you. Yes, it's thank been you. my pleasure being here. I so appreciate uh, Lindsay and Evan, the two of you, taking the time and especially the thought with uh, these questions. Yes. Um, as a final note, I want to stress that every person can contribute to the historical narrative. Local historians and historical organizations constantly seek and provide opportunities for community members to share their life experiences and input. Most services and events are free to the public. One idea is to talk to a graduate student and contribute to new scholarship. In light of our conversation today, I encourage you to explore and enrich your own relationships. This is my fourth episode hosting Beyond Footnotes, and I am so proud of how far we've come together. I am thankful for the support and encouragement from the PSU History Department and the work provided by Evan Smiley and Jeff Stone for the last few episodes. I want to welcome Lily Hart to the team. Uh, I look forward to what wonders we can conjure as, we sh as the show progresses. Of course, what is a show without listeners? As always, thank you for tuning in. Beyond Footnotes is sponsored by the PSU Department of History and was recorded in the studios of KPSU. You can find information about this episode on our show page at kpsu.org and on SoundCloud. If you'd like to help the show out even more, there are a number of ways you can do that. Tell a friend, subscribe, or rate us on iTunes, and follow the show on Twitter or Facebook. Signing off, I'm Lindsay Smith. Have a great week. <laughs>